Hi, I'm Steve Malunovic, and you're listening to You Changed My Mind. I started this podcast for people who maybe have been given answers to questions about faith, God, or the Bible that just don't work for you anymore. Or maybe you have questions, yet no one to ask. Maybe you felt like you weren't allowed to bring something up at church or at the family dinner table. Maybe you got in trouble for asking something that's impolite or challenged someone. I'm advocating that you aren't a bad Christian for having doubts, asking tough questions, for changing the way you think and what you believe when new information is presented. This is the podcast where no questions about God, the Bible, church, and Christian life are off limits. My guest today is Andrew Laubacher. He and I were introduced a few years ago through some mutual friends, and after getting to know each other and through a series of events, he ended up playing worship for my wife and I's wedding. Besides being incredibly musically talented, he's one of the most well-read people I've met and has a huge heart for ministry and apologetics in general. He's also beginning the journey of becoming a Catholic priest, which I'm sure we'll get to early on in our conversation today. Well, uh, Andrew, just tell me and the folks listening about a bit about yourself. Uh, how did you come to know Jesus? And tell me about your call to ministry and what you're expecting just starting this journey. Yeah, so my name is Andrew Laubacher. I am a native uh, Venturian from Ventura, California. And um, yeah, I grew up here uh, actually in Oxnard, which is about 10 minutes away. But we moved to Ventura when I was about 12. Um, and yeah, I grew up in the church, um, in the Catholic church, going to mass and going to church on the weekends and, you know, I was very involved in, uh, church life growing up with my family. I had two large Catholic families on both sides. Okay. So my mom's one of eight. My dad's one of seven, both very, very Catholic, you know? So hmm. yeah, I grew, I went to a private, you know, middle school and all that to eighth grade. And I ended up going to a public high school, Ventura High School. And that's where really I got exposed to all of the worldly ideas that I honestly didn't know existed. So all of a sudden when I'm 14, you know, I'm playing basketball. I've been surfing my whole life, you know, played every sport at one point, you know, pretty active. And in all these different areas in high school, like everyone just raged, partied, you know, so at 14, all of a sudden, I'm being exposed to pornography, to drugs, sex, rock and roll. I mean, all this stuff. And I didn't have, yeah, I guess I didn't have this real conviction of, of Jesus as God and uh, a necessity to have a faith life, you know. So those fleshly, worldly things really attracted me, obviously. And I was pretty indoctrinated, you know, pretty quickly in high school. So I was going to youth group. We actually had an awesome youth group and I was going to that youth group, but also, I don't know, I've always been like a doubter. So I, I'm very skeptical. Um, it's actually my, I don't know if you get gotten to any of the Myers-Briggs psychology mm-hmm. stuff, but I'm a, I'm an ENFJ. Oh yeah. Um, I'm the same man. Yeah, bro. So I'm, I'm, but so I'm naturally skeptical. And I think early on, I never really heard any good arguments for the existence of God when I was 14 or 15. Hmm. And the worldly things, the drugs, the hooking up, that just stuff was more attractive, you know? So I was slowly getting into those things while I knew it was wrong. Um, and then going to a youth group where it was actually like awesome. And I was having some experiences with God, you know, on retreats and but I would just go back home to the same parties. And but yeah, my natural skepticism, I think led me 
to be disposed to these atheistic agnostic ideologies, which honestly in that time, so this is 2005 to 2009, um, really the height of the new atheism with the four horsemen of Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, um, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, you know, like that, that stuff was starting to get blasted out. And I don't think I actually really invested at all into those ideas. I was more of a practical atheist in the sense of, yeah, none of my friends were Christian, really. I had a few friends living out the Catholic faith, but they were weird. And, uh, you know, the, the youth group was just a bunch of weirdos and they all crazy Jesus people. And um, so, yeah, I'd say all of high school was pretty much just a deeper and deeper dive into agnosticism, atheism, even though I didn't have any good arguments outside of science has disproven God and there's so much evil in the world, there can't be a God. But I never looked into any good arguments for Christianity, right? So I was smoking a lot of weed. I was partying, surfing, and um, my senior year graduated, uh, was studying music theory at community college. That was the plan. Ended up getting caught by the cops my senior year uh, with weed and drugs in the car. At that time, it was illegal. And so, yeah, I had to go to court and um, yeah, pay a bunch of money. And that was kind of my wake up call. And it wasn't a, oh my gosh, like when I got caught, um, it wasn't a, oh, I need to like follow Jesus now. It was just like, that sucked. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be in the cop car again. And um, so I ended up getting invited on a retreat that summer in 2009. And yeah, I was like the lowest place I've been. You know, I had really bad anxiety disorder. All my friends kind of left me because I wasn't smoking anymore. I wasn't partying. Um, so yeah, it was kind of like my rock bottom moment. And in adoration so as catholics we take what jesus said literally in john 6 you know this eat and drink my flesh and blood and um you know when when peter says uh or when jesus looks to peter and says hey are you gonna leave too you know peter says where else are we to go lord do you have the words of eternal life like i experienced um the love of jesus in adoration um which actually yeah you, you start seeing practice in the church in about the 10th century um, this practice of adoring Christ in the Eucharist in a worship setting. So for Protestants that don't know what that is, it really just looks like a worship setting. We have guitar and songs and, um, you know, you have Jesus in a monstrance, which means to show. Um, and yeah, the, you know, the little host is there, which we believe is really Jesus' flesh. So in that setting, I just experienced his love. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it, you know. So after that, that was 2009, I came back and it was just, you know, changed, transformed. Um, and I got super obsessed with apologetics mm. and that has not changed 12 years later. So um, started reading everything I could on Christianity, watching hours. I think I've watched most debates you can find on YouTube over the years um, with most of the top intellects, you know, and yeah, it's funny, the more I dove into those questions, how do we know the scriptures are reliable and historical? How do we know the early church was really, for me, uh, how do we know that this early church was universal? How do we know that they were Catholic? And um, how do we, yeah, believe in even that Jesus really lived? You know, these things I invested in pretty early on, and I kept finding answers. And I realized as a Christian and as a Catholic, we have the most, I would contend, we have the most rigorous intellectual background of any religion known to man ever. I think it's the most rigorous, comprehensive, all encompassing 
depth. The, the depth is just amazing. Um, from the sciences to theology to philosophy, psychology, uh, there's just an incredible depth, you know. So I kept discovering that. Um, and then, yeah, I got into praise and worship. So start listening. all of a sudden I was doing all the rock and roll, reggae, you know, reggae, smoking weed songs and playing in bands and then kind of transfer that all into praise and worship. Started leading at my church. And then, um, yeah, I, I ended up going to study theology and philosophy at Franciscan University. It's a little school in Ohio. So uh, it's actually very charismatic, you know, so we believe actually the Catholic Church does believe it's all in their magisterial texts and teachings and encyclicals. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, there we started to see, yeah, you know, people praying in tongues, people operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I started to see miracles. Um, it was just a crazy experience. So that was when I feel like the head and the heart for me of the Christian life came into uh, existence for me there. So I was studying, you know, theology and then experiencing theology in a really radical way there. So, yeah, then I started playing these conferences there, you know, which in the Catholic world are it's the same as Protestant, uh, like worship events, you know, and about 20,000 people every summer. And all of a sudden just started getting phone calls to go places. So that was about 23. Um, so that was about eight years ago. And then I worked at a high school for two years doing campus ministry, would fly out on the weekends for events around the country, and then eventually went full-time touring. Did that the last four years. Um, just an incredible experience. So many amazing people, testimonies, you know, um, so many struggles too in my own life. Just, you know, I haven't been perfect, obviously, in the last 12 years. I've struggled with, you know, different sins and, um, you know, mistakes, but have really experienced the mercy of God. And um, yeah, so pandemic hits. Um, I essentially had all my events canceled. And during that time as a Catholic, uh, you know, we have a life possible, we call them vocations, which just means a calling, you know, to matrimony. We, do, we have more than just marriage. So we have marriage, you know, consecrated life and priesthood. So you know, a nun or a sister, you consecrated. You can be a consecrated virgin even as a lay person. Um, you know, but priesthood, obviously, you're giving your life solely. Um, we believe that we are modeling our life after Jesus, who was a celibate male. Um, and yeah, so I felt God calling me to that life of full-time uh, commitment. St. Paul talks about, I think, in Corinthians, being solely for the Lord, not in having the distractions of, of the world. And so, yeah, I felt God calling me to that. And I just finished my first month in seminary in uh, Camarillo, St. John's Seminary. Mm. So that's kind of the, um, the quick story of uh, what God's done in my life. And yeah, Jesus has yeah, continually amazed me in his, um, yeah, in his power and his mercy in just in the church, getting to see so many different stories of how he has worked in people's lives, you know, it's just really, I love, I just love the journey of, of walking with people, you know? So, um, yeah, man, that's kind of, that's a quick summary. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I, that's so crazy that like, I've known you a little bit on and off for a while and had no idea that like that any of that was part of your story. Yeah. <laughs> um, I knew you had like gone around to, um, 
a lot of those conferences that yeah. Emily does and a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah, Emily and I have done a lot of, you know, ministry and events together. Yeah. So, and it's, it's funny too, because um, I love how you give like the little, like, well, yeah, in the Catholic world, just that and the other, because I'm sure most of my friends who might be listening to this are Protestant evangelicals sure. like myself. Um, Cause it's funny. I had no idea like Franciscan was a thing. Right. Like in right. most of the churches I grew up in, you talk about Biola, Azusa Pacific or Moody sure. or whatever. They're like, Oh yeah, totally know what that is. And like, I remember when Emily would talk to me about like Franciscan, I was like, yeah. I've, it's just whoosh, totally over my head. And or same with uh, like the Steubenville conferences. Yeah, right. I was like, that exists. Like I like 60,000 no... kids this summer, you know, it's like 23 sites around the world or North America. So coast to coast and three in Canada, you know, it's, yeah, they're massive events, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the Protestant Catholic world. So being in the worship world, I've, I've honestly been, and I always share this with Protestants. And I share it with you too. Like I have been so f- fed by the Protestant church. I'm so grateful for guys like Robbie Zacharias, John Lennox, um, I mean, Joel Houston, I mean, uh, Judah Smith, I mean, you know, this guys, so many different varying theologies, but, um, you know, William Lane Craig, I mean, go down the list. I've been so blessed by so much of Protestant uh, ministry. It's played a huge role in my life, you know, especially in the worship world too. You know, Matt Marr is a Catholic worship leader and, you know, he, I think he's done an incredible job at bringing the church together. And I think stuff like this is just so crucial, especially in a time of so much anger and emotionalism. We don't know how to argue intellectually without, oh, yeah. without getting angry with one another. And so I think things like this are so good and necessary, but yeah, I mean, along the journey, I mean, William Lane Craig and some of these heavy hitters, Hugh Ross, PhD um, physicist. I mean, so many of these guys have played a huge role in my intellectual journey. So I've, I'm super grateful. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, I, I've definitely noticed that as well. Um, and something about what, what you said earlier reminded me of this, cause you're talking about personality tests. Have you yeah. done like strengths finders or um, some of the other ones like that? Yeah, I just kind of started. So at seminary, they actually have us in our formation. It's uh, intellectual, spiritual, human, and pastoral. Those are kind of the mm-hmm. four pillars and we went through a week of like a psychologist coming in who actually works with Dr. Daniel Amen, or is going through some of his credentials. He's a Christian, Christian man who's, uh, I think, one of the top psychiatrists in the world. And um, so we just started kind of going through that. So I've kind of, I've just started to look at my personality type and all that. Dude, it's scary how 100% dead on that thing was. Hmm. Like, it is exactly me. It's scary. Like, it perfectly describes me. You know, so I've done the yeah other personality tests. Um, I don't know specifically any strength or, you know, okay. one, but yeah, strength finders is one. I think it's more in the like corporate business world or like college yeah, at least. I like That's that what, stuff. Yeah, there was one, and it, it reminded me of what you said of like sort of um, getting getting tied up and wrapped up in emotionalism or just this idea like we get angry if someone disagrees with us um, because what I feel like has helped me so much in that is there was a book. Um, that I read and actually there's like, it's sort of like a personality test, but it's mm-hmm. called the righteous mind. Um, uh, maybe it's something you'd be interested in, but I love it when it comes to religion and politics where there's like, I think five moral foundations. So, and pretty much everyone, at least every like American in the 21st century would believe in um, fairness and equality that, you know, every person uh, should be, or no, sorry, it's, it's well, fairness and equality is one. 
And the second one is care. So yeah, everyone should be treated fairly, equally, that like there's no, you know, kings above whatever that, you know, you don't, everyone gets equal treatment under the law, et cetera, et cetera. And then right. care is, you know, charity is good. Like it's nice to help people. It's bad to hurt, but, you know, everyone believes in that. And then uh, liberty was another one that pretty much everyone believes that like you should have some autonomy, that you should have freedoms. Um, and obviously that line differs, but that it's still a value for people wherever they draw that line. Right. Um, and that pretty much if you only believe in those two or three things that you are statistically most likely to be uh, like vote liberal and, Demo- and as a Democrat mm-hmm. um, and then that conservatives and Republicans and oddly enough, a lot of times Christians, because like some of these values are inherent in, in Christianity or at least for the most right. part in most denominations, but um, it's like uh, submission to authority, uh, loyalty and purity. Um, so that's why, you know, for some people there might be like, um, you know, submission to authority where it's like, I'm the parent or I'm, you know, the boss, you have to listen to me or, you know, um, maybe this is getting a little too political, but I think of like Donald Trump is kind of this way where you sort of like, you have to be loyal to me. Uh, you know, and, and some, sometimes, you know, we can, we can go overboard that. I still think it's a relatively important thing to be loyal to your friends or loyal to whatever your church or company, whatever it might be. But you could be so loyal to your company that you break the law or whatever. Right. Um, so, but it's really fascinating where the, the whole idea behind it is sort of, can't we just disagree a little more civilly where it's sort of going, oh, like I totally understand you, you know, vote this way or think this way or go to this kind of church because like that's, you know, that's your value system. You believe that that's, you know, what's good in the world and that's what you value. I just listened to Dave Rubin and Matt Frad. Matt Frad's probably one of the biggest Catholic apologist slash youtubers and he was just talking about that with dave rubin who is a you know homosexual male that uh has definitely now really made some incredible strides towards faith and you know toured around with jordan peterson around the world and they talked about this same exact thing that the left somehow has all of these value systems such as tolerance but all of a sudden when you don't have the same view of them, they'll burn down your car and your mm. city. You know, it's the most intolerant thing. So it's all of these asserted values that they don't actually live. They sound amazing. Equality sounds amazing. We all desire that race, this racism thing would end. But I think there is a reality that racism as an idea is, is one thing, but racism is, is not an idea. It's lived in the hearts of, of men and women. And that's never, mm going to be, you know, eradicated. That doesn't mean that we make systems and laws that allow that, you know, to be, def- you know, conquered and, 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 and as much rid from our society as possible. But I do think, yeah, a more conservative viewpoint does, does share the reality. Like, hey, let's communicate, let's dialogue. At the end of the day, there will be disagreements, but there does have to be some type of existence where we can disagree and still be civil, mm-hmm. where the left seems like if you disagree with them, uh, they're actually not going to be tolerant with you. They're going to call you horrible names. They're going to call you out. They're going to cancel any of your you know, information that you have online. They're going to shut you down. It's like the complete contradiction of what they worship, which is tolerance and equality. Mm. You know, it's like YouTube will take down all these big tech companies will take down posts or stuff that are, you know, religious or speaking out against abortion or any of these hot topics. It's, it's so twisted right now. Um, and I've been really thinking about this a lot. Maybe we can, dive into this i i think a lot about how can you you know assert value to certain um 
things such as equality and justice without believing that there's a mind behind the design or that your, your thinking is even reliable. So John Lennox talks about this. I think I've never heard a good, I've never heard a good atheist response to this. Okay. Because essentially, um, I listen to a lot of Justin Briley with the Unbelievable podcast. Um, he's a Protestant guy in Europe. It's the, I don't know if you listen to him. Um, no, I've never, never heard of it. Okay. That, dude, it's, it's the most, he's been this for 10 years. He wrote a book called, uh, While I'm Still a Christian After Listening you know, to Atheists for 10 Years. So hmm. it's the best dialogue between atheists and Christians that is out there, uh, 100%. But he talks about um, John Lennox, he's a PhD mathematician at Cambridge, um, shares that why as an atheist can you ever trust, or even an agnostic, that your mind could produce anything of truth when its origin is from a random chance explosion 13.8 billion years ago? How can you, how can you actually make a coherent statement and ask us to trust it if you believe that its source and its beginning and its origin was complete chance and has no design, has no order. I mean, I've, I've really never heard, heard a good argument for that. So as a Christian, we can actually say that um, no reason is actually reasonable. Like we can actually trust our minds. Essentially, as an agnostic or atheist, you have no good reason to trust that your brain, which is a random chemicals, random neurons firing, it has no beginning, it has no origin, it has no end. You're simply dust in motion you have no reason to trust any of the thoughts that come out of my mouth, any, any of the ideas that come to my mind, you know? And with a lot of the stuff in the world right now with people ascribing value to these ideas of justice, even of love, I don't know how we can speak a thing without a grounding in the belief that our thoughts and that our minds actually can come to know truth. So GK Chesterton, probably one of the greatest writers of the 20th century mm -hmm. uh, wrote on this extensively in orthodoxy and some other of his writings. And, you know, it's just amazing, but he talks about like every mind was made to kind of come down and, and bite down on some type of truth. Right. He talks about this open-mindedness that our generation worships like, dude, just be open-minded, bro. Like whatever, like you do you like this relativism. Right. Oh yeah. Um, but he talks about if we never, you know, allow our minds to, to chomp down on truth, I'm probably butchering the way he says it, but like if we're constantly just open, our mouths are constantly just open, we're never gonna clomp down, clomp down on anything, chomp down on anything of, of sustenance. And I think it's a really good point. Like you can be so open-minded and forever open-minded to never make a decision about anything. Hmm. And I, I don't think that will ever bring about any progress, which seems to be a thing that, again, our society is worshiping is progress. But everything that's happening right now doesn't seem like progress, you know, with this push of freedom of speech and all this stuff. There's not a lot of freedom of speech, you know. So I think about that a lot. Like only the Christian who believes in, you know, a, a moral grounding, who believes in an intellectual grounding can make assertions that can stand upon truth and actually believe that truth can be known, you know. And I don't know many atheists, honestly. I've really never, heard, even the top guys, Stephen Hawking's, you know, who said that, you know, in his book, um, Philosophy is Dead. Mm -hmm. uh, John Lennox calls him out and he's like, he's clearly not stayed in touch with philosophy. Yeah. You know, and um, that, those simple 
contradicting, I mean, philosophy 101, law of non-contradiction. I mean, they are so circular and fallacious in so many different ways. I'm always amazed that these top dogs can say things of that nature, you know? So I think the dialogue really needs to start to come into, at least with our generation, how can we dialogue, kind of getting back to mm-hmm. us being able to dialogue, how can we have any dialogue, you know, that has any, any value if we really believe we are simply just a random speck floating through the universe? You know, I, I'm really impressed that guys like Sam Harris, who would, I would assume tell his children at night that he loves them. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think like, in the back of his mind, is he really just thinking like, this is just empty words or is this really real? You know, you can't love, I don't know, there's no love possible with us just being neurons firing, you know? Um, so those are the things that I feel like the conversation needs to, needs to shift back to those kind of basic um, philosophy of logic, philosophy of reasoning. Um, I don't think people in our generation, Stephen, are thinking. We're feeling. So he talks about that. Dave Rubin and Matt Fred talk about this emotionalism. Everyone right now isn't thinking. We're just feeling. And mm-hmm. if abortion feels bad, because you don't want to make a you know a woman choose a certain way, then you say one thing and don't really care about it. You know, and then you get angry when people oppose or whatever the topic is about God. If people disagree about the God that you worship and they get emotional about it, then that means it's true. Mm. You know, and yeah, we really need to get back, I think, to a real study of epistemology. Yeah, I hear that. The study of knowledge. How can we come to know things? How can we trust our senses? Um, from my knowledge, if, if you are, I think it was Descartes, right, that like pretty much denied the knowing from the senses. I mean, if you can't, yeah, if you can't conclude that the, the information that you're reading, the senses you're experiencing can correspond to any truth in reality, then I can't, how am I supposed to even believe anything you say, you know, because essentially it just comes down to an illusion. Um, and yeah, I think at the end of the day, we really need to get some more dialogue going on with um, at least people who don't believe that, you know, God exists or any type of deity exists. I think we just need to start with those basics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious because it sounded like what you were talking about at the beginning was, um, I want to say it was uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's uh, like five proofs of God and that one of them yeah. is sort of the origin of the mind and the origin of morality um, and that there must be like an un- the unmoved mover, the, the original yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, so uh, so is that kind of what you're getting at with, you know, so this idea of like, well, where, where does this idea of love or how can we say we're moral without sort of this absolute moral authority um, with, with which we, we submit to. Yeah, I would say it was, it was kind of a coyness, but it also just kind of comes down to like, okay, so if people or, or culture, you know, determine um, morality or determine how we know truth, then if one person disagrees, then we're already going to be, you know, in, in a dialogue that isn't going to be fruitful because if, if culture changes, if people's thoughts on certain topics such as killing or death, you know, or rape or these things changes in corresponding groups over time, and there's no actually grounding principle that we can actually come to discover um, or, or, or enter into, then yeah, it, it, it's, 
it's kind of a coyness. I think it's also, um, I, I think John Lennox has kind of made the more modern argument for that. Like you, uh, just because, you know, you believe in the, in the engine of, uh, you know, a car doesn't mean, um, you know, you can dis discount, um, you know, the Ford, uh, maker, like the designer behind mm -hmm. the engine, just because you believe in the mechanics that, how this engine works doesn't mean you can dismiss the mind behind it. So to me in those, in those topics of how do we come to know truth? How can we even start a basis where a dialogue can be fruitful, beneficial, but also grounded in reality? I think you have to start. Yeah. Like with that basic idea and share with one another, like, yeah, so how, how do you come to know truth? You know, what is your grounding principle for that? And yeah, that's been kind of interesting. That was actually even in Augustine. So Augustine shared hmm. his confessions. Um, this isn't anything new to talk about. And I think I've realized over the years, there's really no new good arguments. Yeah. Um, and, and the church has obviously constantly been defending the faith since uh, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts, I think, five, you know, starting to dialogue with um, a lived reality where there was debate, you know, between circumcision and the Gentiles. And they got together already and and decided like, hey, we're not going to you know, hold to these, you know, Jewish laws and you can actually eat meat now. And so dialogue and, and, and really starting to work through topics in the church started at its beginning, you know. So I just think as a, um, as a millennial, we need to get back to those reasonable topics, you know, of, of truth. Yeah, no, I hear that. Um, it's, it's so interesting that, you know, we got into this so quick because I, um, I remember doing a, a class on Alpha, and I know like um, it's like kind of coming to the Catholic world as well. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of people do Alpha. Mm -hmm. uh, I've experienced it, but I heard it's awesome. Yeah, I I have mixed feelings about it because um, like th this was actually my issue. I feel like it's really great for seekers, like people right. who are interested in this kind of stuff, and maybe have a little bit more of a bent to it. Um, but I remember there was this one uh, woman we had come at the church I was working at, and with the Alpha class I was leading. And, and she's incredibly brilliant, very intelligent. Mm -hmm. um, and she just kept pushing. Like she was just not afraid to, you know, offend anyone at our table or just say yeah. what was on her mind. And she was sort of, uh, I guess, yeah, she was like an atheist who was still, she like wanted, she was like, come on, like I, I want to find a Christian who can convince me, but she just was not really yeah. very convinced. Um, so she was still pretty genuine that way. But like one of her big things with, with morality, and so this is what I'm, I'm curious, your thoughts, mm. was that she would say, you know, why do you have to have this threat of like eternal punishment or, you know, it doesn't have to be hell or whatever, but why do you have to have, you know, this absolute authority, uh, moral authority or whatever um, to be, a, you know, a, a quote unquote good person or just to love your neighbor to be nice? Why, why does it have to come with a threat or with an authority or whatever? Why can't we just all collectively you know, to some extent agree that, that these are the things we're going to do and agree to as a, as a society without the need for God. And that, yeah. that was just always an interesting question to me where I, totally. I was like, I, I kind of get that from a, you know, 20, 21st century humanist yeah. perspective. Well, I think it's a utopian idea and all of these, you know, liberal, you know, Marxist, um, I mean, utilitarian, whatever idea of, you know, human flourishing that people have, even communism, look, you know, these people that think these things are going to bring about just this equality for all, um, they're never practical. So when I, uh, especially Ravi Zacharias shares about that, 
um, people who come up and ask those questions, they still lock their doors at night. Yeah. You know, so people who will speak of these things, um, they're not practical. So I do think, you know, they're, they're still going to lock their doors at night. They're still going to lock their cars. You know, it's very difficult to live that way because we know humans are not perfect. And I really do think the Christian worldview does ascribe and speak to reality the best. So mm-hmm. I really do believe that original sin is a real thing. <laughs> I mean, we see it, this thing in the Catholic world, we call it, you know, concupiscence, this inclination towards sin that's, you know, in us. And obviously, yeah, we believe, um, you know, through baptism, you know, you're saved, um, you know, through faith mm-hmm. um, and by the grace of the Holy Spirit. But there is a, a practicality to, I think, order. And we see that very early on in the church too, this hierarchical structure of order um, that brings about, I'd say, a freedom, uh, especially in, in the moral law. So, yeah, when I hear those conversations, I try and bring people to, you know, really question um, the practicality of that. And especially when it comes to hell and, you know, it seems to be this threat. I, I think when you're in love, you don't really think about um, that threat. Like you and your wife, you know, when you're in love, it, you, you don't really think about the, the threat of, you know, separation. Like. I don't know. I always try and bring it back to love. It's just mm-hmm. a very different thing when you're in love. You don't think about, um, you know, I mean, mo- most couples that are in love, obviously, right? Like there's not this medit- this, this deep meditation on, on divorce. I mean, that would be the last thing you would want from your beloved, yeah. to be separated from them. And that's what hell is, is an eternal separation from God. So um, I, I try and bring that analogy with loved ones that, uh, I don't, I don't feel in my Christian faith that I am threatened with hell because I'm in love with God, you know, and I don't, I don't want to be separated from him. I wouldn't want to do something that separates me from him, which is sin. Um, you know, we still make mistakes and we still fall. You know, we have the sacrament of confession and like in, you know, James, I think chapter one, we confess our sins to one another. And that's kind of where we find um, continual ongoing, you know, resolution and, and uh you know recommitment to christ but i don't know if that yeah that that, that doesn't i think answer the question fully but i think it's a good place to start with people because most people have experienced love in some capacity um yeah i would question like if that woman was married or had kids and you know that to me plays a little bit more um efficacious than just some really good philosophical argument Mm -hmm. for that you know and morality actually brings about freedom. So I'm like very clear with this when I speak to teens, like, you know, my buddy plays for uh, the 49ers football team. Um, and I remember asking him like, cause people get angry that, I mean, in the old Testament, right? There's 613 laws plus 10 in the Mosaic law. So like mm-hmm. you had a lot to do in order to be right with God. And now, you know, obviously we still have the 10 commandments um and the beatitudes and jesus gave us two really good commandments love the lord your god with your heart mind soul your strength and love your neighbor as yourself and that's not as much as those people had in the old testament thank god but those rules bring about great freedom and i remember asking you know my buddy like okay dude how how big is your playbook like how big is that rules uh book for football like there has to be like a manual that has mm-hmm. all the rules of football Dude, it's over 500 pages long. 
and people look to the church and say it's constricting and <laughs> all of these things. And I'm like, dude, look at every sport. It has an insane amount of rules. And you know, if you go and play a sport without rules, <laughs> I mean, it's chaotic. No one would go watch a baseball game if there was no umpires. It would be chaotic. So actually, I think the teachings of the church and the Judeo-Christian value system and its morality that is grounded in, in something that we say has been revealed to us. So we didn't make this up. This is the difference in Christian morality. Mm -hmm. This isn't something we made up. We believe that this has been revealed to us. Very different. And if you look at Islam, if you look at these other religions, the morality that Muhammad lived, I mean, no one wants to talk about this, but it was really messed up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was very, very crazy, um, you know, sexual immorality. Um, I mean, Muhammad did some really crazy stuff. You know, if you just look into, you know, his life a little bit outside of, um, you know, the, uh, what is it called? Their, their book? The Quran. The Quran, the Surah. You know, if you look at outside of some of these, I mean, he lived a really crazy life. Um, and so I, I are, we, are we talking like crazy bad or like how people say, Oh, Jesus was like, man, it was insane. All the things yeah. he was doing were like, Oh, it's just I, I just mean like cra crazy immoral. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. So much sexual sin, I would call it. Um, there's just a, a video I listened to actually with a Protestant um, guy. I can't think of his name. He was on the Matt Frad show. He's a mm -hmm. pretty famous YouTuber. Um, he studied Islam, you know, the last 20 years or something. And, yeah, I just shared the reality of Muhammad's life and how, you know, multiple times he thought his wife thought he was possessed by demons. He thought, it, you know, demon revealed mm -hmm. to him, um, you know, the Quran and all of these teachings and just some really like bizarre stuff. Okay. You know? So I don't know, regarding that woman, I, I would, I would kind of bring up that. Yeah. Look, look to places in her life where she experiences love and, and show that, um, you know, in that place of love, the context of of morality isn't fear-based you know it's actually based on on relationship and i wouldn't want to hurt that person um and when you do deduce morality to just people's opinions as we know there can be thousands of different opinions so who's right and who's you know who has the right answer it just becomes honestly a really chaotic experience when you don't have structure and order and we see it all over that's why we have street lights that's why we have a hierarchy in sports you have a manager you have you know a coach an assistant coach i mean the funny thing is this stuff that people are afraid of called religion it's mm -hmm. immersed in everything um so that's kind of probably a longer answer that i <laughs> i haven't really thought much about but hmm. no i get you yeah I, I think that's one of the the interesting things where i think they're uh, from what I've heard is a, is a large push towards sort of, yeah, if you can't just be a good person and, and by good, I mean like, you know, a, a relatively moral law abiding person. Everyone has to redefine what good is. So sure. every person's definition of good is going to be different. So it's just this really, it, it could be an infinite regress of, of definitions, you know? Yeah. Even then, like if we get kind of all the most common things of right. like, like, you know, I, and I, I think this is always the trouble of the golden rule. You know, I think for, from what I've heard, you know, I might be wrong, is that, you know, some atheists might say, yeah, that's a great golden rule to do to others what you would have them do to you, or just to be excellent to one another, you know, however you might put it. And sure, did we get that from, you know, Jesus, or actually really before that, the, um, 
to remember where it was in the Old Testament. And then there's even like Confucius that said stuff like that, um, that they might say that that is just a overall human truth that humans right. will generally come to. Um, so I, I hear them on that where I go, yeah, like, you know, maybe, you know, it is, you know, you're a higher functioning, whatever, moral well, person. On evolution, some evolutionary principle. Yeah, sure. But then I think about, you know, if somehow you could show every religious person in the world, somehow, like right. you could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no God, you know, there is no throne room, there's nothing. Like if somehow you could show and prove and whatever, you know, and you convince every person there's no God, would people be moral? Uh, or, you know, even their previous definition of good when they believe there is a God. I, I have a tough time believing that a lot of people would. And so I think that's also difficulty. And I don't know, maybe that's where they get their idea of, well, that's the only reason we have religion. Well, yeah, well, some of these philosophers now and scientists think that the idea of God is simply just a functional evolutionary hmm. mechanism. So to believe in God is fine because it will order society, but it's not true. Hmm. Uh, it's fictitious. And David Rubin actually kind of is, you know, sharing that obviously on a very large scale. And, you know, guys um, definitely in this intellectual realm are full on believers of that. It is simply a function of an evolutionary principle that we evolved to need to believe in some deity to be good to one another. And yeah, I, I don't think that the morality can be deduced to a evolutionary um you know expression of natural selection or mutation i don't think these things can mutate or can naturally select mm -hmm. and so far as even for the parameters of natural selection and mutation to take place that in itself is an order that cannot be an origin from evolution does that mm -hmm. make sense so okay, evolution yeah. can't pro produce uh, there had there had to be some some grounding um, mind again behind there had to be design even in evolution, for evolution to take its course, um, it still needs design. So I, I am totally okay with accepting that it was designed maybe evolutionary for these things to be beneficial for the herd to continue to exist for us to love one another. And then we decided to you know as we obviously grew um, you know bigger brains and evolved and yeah we wrote stuff down and. And that was a pretty clear, um, you know, synthesis of an idea that actually allowed us to flourish. So just because we can find some of those things on an empirical level, I don't think you can deduce from that that therefore there is no God. I just don't mm -hmm. see how that follows. Yeah, I and, hear that. And, and I do think that when people ask those questions of hell or you know why can't i just be a good person i've probably heard that more on the road than anything else oh okay like, oh, i'm a good person i don't hurt anybody you know and like why do i need god and so in that context i just know they don't know the person of christ and they haven't looked really into his claims you know because they're shocking and they're different and i think that was a big shift for me when i discovered that all religions aren't the same they're radically different on the surface level. There mm -hmm. may be some unifying principles. When you get into the core of the teachings of Buddhism, of Islam, and of Christianity, they are radically different. Oh, yeah. That's not being mean. That's not being judgmental. It's just the truth of what they teach. Mormonism, very radical, different theologies, you know? And that's not mean, you know? That's why we have to really be able to weigh truth together and have dialogue 
on real real issues you know because if we just say yeah let's just be a good person that that definition is always going to change and clearly uh hitler and and mao and all of these atheists atheistic regimes that killed more people in the 20 20th century than ever in the history of the world they believed what they were doing was good mm-hmm. so thomas aquinas talks about that he says every sin is uh committed uh is a perceived good yeah so no one no one goes and has sex with someone uh you know because they like want to sin mm-hmm. they perceive a good in it and there is obviously in marriage sex is one of the most beautiful unifying and procreative acts that man and woman can do i mean i've never had sex but i heard it's amazing i mean okay. a lot of <laughs> A lot of people seem to like it, you know, so um, in, in its right context, in its right order, it allows great freedom and, and joy and pleasure. And these things, I mean, I love, I don't know, I think it's funny to think about, but it's true. Like God created the orgasm. Hmm. Like that's a good thing, you know, but when it's out of order and when it's out of context, no one wants to um, say that there is any type of sexual morality but all of a sudden we see in the hashtag me too in Hollywood. Um, I mean, the medical field and the sports industry all through the churches, Protestant and Catholic, we have mm-hmm. horrible amounts of sexual sin. Um, and to me, again, it, it points to the reality that no, when we do have an ordered, an ordered morality, that isn't something that we invent, but that we actually discover mm. and, and invite into our lives and conform to that's really where freedom lies. And yeah, when you work with, with, a, with a, a nature of something, the nature is how uh, an intended, uh, how an entity was intended to operate, you find it, you find it's flourishing. So when, you know, philosophy, you know, fun little, you know, examples are like, if you try and eat a burrito with a hammer, it's not going to work. That was not the nature of the hammer. It wasn't intended to pick up burritos mm-hmm. or pick up food. You know, it was intended to hammer nails. When you when you use entities outside of the nature they were designed to operate in, they don't work well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think those questions come from a good place. And and my thing too is like, I don't think people are are asking questions. Mm-hmm. So I have like a. I don't know. It could be just, it could be the ENFJ in me. I want to have that. <laughs> I want to have that J. Huge ideas connect and conclude. Um, but I don't think people think about these things at all. Mm-hmm. Your average person, I think, would say, and I've found this too very regularly. I don't need to be. I don't need to go to church to be a good person. Once again, you've missed the whole point of of Christianity. It's not about going to church. It's, I mean, that that is a response to you discovering the love of God and what Jesus did for you on the cross. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a really hard time, at least, you know, in, in the world as an evangelist, it's very difficult to share the gospel with relativists. I think it's the most mm-hmm. difficult. I would rather talk with an angry atheist agnostic <laughs> or, an, or someone of another religion um, than a relativist. It's just brutal to try and even share truth. Yeah. No, I've heard that. That's where uh, I think it was like missionaries in like India have had like when they first came had a really hard time because they talk about Jesus. They talk about God. And they're like, great. So I'll just kind of add them to the list. And they're like, right. no, like one and only right. like that's it. And they're yeah. like, and they just have such a different worldview of like, you know, we have barriers, we have dividers of this There's is millions. right around different. So um, that was actually, I think one of the most fascinating things that helped me understand 
Eastern philosophy was that, um, what do they call it? I think it's called monism where it's that all, yes. all things are one that you yes. and I, Andrew are no different. The, the differences and the dividers are just illusions. And I was like, wow, yeah. that's a very different worldview to try to share the gospel to. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The exclusivity of saying that we're right about Christianity is the most offensive thing to people. Mm-hmm. Who are you to say that we, that you are right? You know, and I think, again, it comes down to, well, if we just remain open-minded and never take that leap of faith, because here's the reality, as an atheist, agnostic, unbeliever, whatever, everyone is taking a leap of faith. Everyone is. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you are a postmodern, uh, you know, materialist, I mean, whatever, you are still taking a leap of faith. And I would actually contend that the Christian... That leap, uh, that leap of faith is not as huge of a gap as I think people perceive. Mm-hmm. I think people really think it's just this wishful thinking, you know, coping mechanism. And, you know, how dare you say that there is one, you know, one guy that actually is God. And, you know, there's no, you know, homosexual marriage and all of these, you know, constricting, you know, things that, yeah, people can go to hell. All these things are so offensive to people. but actually i think the more i've discovered i don't know life and and the people that have expounded upon you know christian ideas over over the 2000 years of of its existence to me the leap isn't as far as people say mm-hmm. i think actually science is bringing us closer to god than ever before um guys like stephen barr i mean the funny thing is in the catholic church we have the longest history of theists who are scientists who have the most significant discoveries in science. Mm-hmm. Stephen Barr in his book, Modern Science, Ancient Faith, literally has three pages of names of men and women who were Catholic Christians in the early church until now that had some of the most significant scientific discoveries. You know, so that you're not going to see that on Twitter. You're not going to see that mm-hmm. on Instagram or Facebook. But I actually find more and more that, you know, it's reasonable to believe and, and the leap of faith isn't as far as people say. And so if we can at least acknowledge that we're all living in this uncertainty, I think that would be a good place to start, you know, because even as a Christian, we can't say that we know everything about everything. We are putting mm-hmm. faith in a person that we don't see and haven't, I mean, I haven't seen Jesus physically. Uh, you know, obviously outside of the Eucharist, you know, we believe as Catholics, but yeah, so we're all living in faith, you know. Andrew and I had a very long conversation uh, following this, so feel free to listen to that, but here was kind of a good stopping point for us, and in this next episode, we'll talk about good theology and cancel culture as well.